I want to invite us to a time in God's Word. Uh, we'll be looking at the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And I want you to think through, um, as the Apostle Paul thought about Christmas, what were the implications of his thinking about the coming of Jesus? So I just kind of want that question to be in the back of our minds. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow our hearts and our heads before you and ask your blessing upon your word. Without your spirit, we would be those who are always seeing but ever remain blinded. Without your spirit, we will be those who are always hearing but never arriving at an understanding of truth. And Father, we know that there are many amongst us who are hurting and suffering and who have hope that is blinded by the, this world. And our prayer is that you would lift us to glory, that you would uh, remove distractions and cares and allow us to see the beauty of Jesus even this moment. Would you build us up for your glory and your honor? We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Earlier this year in the month of June, uh, which happened to be my birthday month, with, uh, which kind of caused a lot of attention to this subject, uh, there were a group of Thai soccer players who were trapped in a cave, and these were young teenagers, and they journeyed over two and a half miles into one of the most dangerous caves uh, in that region of the earth. And if you kept up with the story, uh, it all happened uh, right around a severe rainy season. And so these boys were trapped inside and the rains were coming, oxygen levels were depleting, and the waters were rising. And uh, you might remember Elon Musk, who was the founder of the Tesla automotive company, he chimed in and he actually said that, hey, we have technology, right? He says technology to dig an underground tunnel and we can rescue the guys. He then said that we could insert a nylon tube into the cave network to create a, uh, a tunnel, an air tunnel. He even said that we could manufacture some power packs and portable pumps that could assist the rescue of these boys. But you know how the story ended, that technology could not come to the rescue of those boys. They actually needed real human intervention. And so a team of Navy SEALs, or former Navy SEALs, uh, took on uh, this task. And uh, it was so dangerous that 
uh, one Navy SEAL uh, lost his life, and his name was Suman Kunan, and he died in the process of trying to rescue these boys. And here's what we learned about that story, that technology could not save them, that they really needed uh, intervention, personal intervention. They needed divers who would not stand from a distance, but who would themselves subject themselves to everything that those boys were experiencing. The low oxygen count, those divers had to enter into it. The dangerous waters, those divers had to enter into it. The rainy conditions, those divers had to enter into it. And I would make the case to you that that is a, an image, I think, a, a fitting image of how we should understand Christmas. That if we understand Christmas from God's perspective, then we, humanity, are in a condition that technology will not save you. Your own efforts will not rescue you that it demands outside intervention, and it demands someone to enter into and live under the very same conditions that you and I live under. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, is Christmas as the divine rescue mission. Christmas as the divine rescue mission. The first question I want to ask of the text is, who needed to be rescued? That if Christmas is a divine rescue mission, then it's appropriate to ask, well, who needed to be rescued? And if you look at the passage, I think Paul would say, all of humanity. Now, I want us to put this passage in its context. I know we read 4, 1 through 7, but I think it's really helpful to go up just a little bit and look at chapter 3, verse 23. So go up on one paragraph right in front of you, and here's what I mean. Look at what Paul says. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be uh, revealed. And so right there, notice the we, and, and notice the captivity language, and notice the imprisonment language, and this is our condition before faith comes, before true faith comes, that, 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 that Paul is painting a picture that we are indeed captive. We are imprisoned, and, and notice what Paul says, that we were held captive under the law. And so the, the thing that is used by God to imprison us is the very law of God. Now, I don't want to assume that we all know what that means, and so I asked Jimmy to put this picture up. So when I was growing up, some of you recognize this, right? This had to be the housewarming gift, the standard housewarming gift of the 70s and the 80s, right? That if you can't read it, it's, it's a, a, uh, the Ten Commandments, and it's written on brass, and it's plated on, wooden, uh, on wood. And, and I'll tell you, everywhere I went, at least in my, in my family, I would go to my grandmother's house. I would see this thing right here on the wall in our house, right next to the thermostat. Like this thing right here was on the wall. I would go to my other grandmother's house, and I mean, it looks the same. It looks like just like this. And no matter where I went, that there was this sense of awareness, right, that these are the Ten Commandments. 
And so whenever you walk into someone's house, this is what we saw. And you can get these for $14 on eBay right now, right? <laughs> if you want the old retro look, you can, you can go and get it. All right, thank you, Jimmy. But those are the Ten Commandments. And I think growing up, I saw them as this is how we live, right? The, this is how God wants you to live your life. Honor the Lord. Do not take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Have no carved images. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. Do not uh, commit adultery. Do not covet, right? All of those things. And that, that, that me growing up, I'm looking at this moral law and I'm saying to myself, this is how we're supposed to live in order to earn God's favor. God will be pleased with us because we know and can do this, right? And here's the thing. If you look at the book of Galatians, I think Paul has the ceremonial law in mind, namely circumcision, maybe some Sabbaths and dietary laws. But you also see that he has that law, the moral law in mind. And here's the thing. When you read the Bible and you go right back to Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the law through Moses as an expression of his own character, and his own holiness. Do you want to know how the people of Israel responded? They said, we can do it. All of it. And that was not a good answer. Because if you go 257 verses later, or eight chapters, they break it. They said to Aaron, fashion us a calf out of gold. And he does it. That even before the dust from the stone that Moses ingrained the law upon had blowed off of it, 257 verses in your Bible later, the very law that they said they could keep in its entirety, they broke it. Eight chapters later in the same book. And here's the thing, that if, if our posture towards the law of God is that we can keep it, you know what Paul says and all of Scripture says? It says you can't. It says you won't. It says it's impossible. To think of all of your heroes in the Bible. Moses did not make it into the promised land. He's the mighty deliverer. And because of his own sin, he did not make it. Abraham, the father of faith, slept with a slave woman. He lied about who his wife was, not once, but twice. Joseph who was used by God to save the people of God in, Israel, in Egypt, walked around in pride in his velour, multicolored coat and made his brothers jealous, right? David, the king of Israel, had a man murdered and took his wife and split his family up. That here's what you're going to read if you rightly read the Bible, that all of these people that we would prop up and say they have it all together, the Bible says, no, they don't. And that's the refrain. Now, what Paul, I think, is doing in our passage is saying, 
No one can keep the law. And therefore, one of the ways that God uses the law is to show us that we are sinful beyond measure and in breaking the law, be condemned to a prison sentence where we think we might walk the earth and that we're alive and we're well. But if we were to see ourselves through God's vantage point, then we're condemned to hell because we've broken the law. If you leave here and take a life, you go to prison. What do you think happens before a righteous and holy God? This is what Paul is getting at. That the law imprisons us. It shows us our sin beyond measure and we're captive to it. And then he switches the metaphor in verse 24. He says, so then when the law was our, the law was our guardian until Christ came. And that word for guardian there is an interesting word that, that John Stott says that this word for guardian was not a, a teacher. Rather, he was a son's disciplinarian. And so if you had a household where there was a wealthy father who had children, this father would hire a, a slave who would serve as this son's disciplinarian. And Stott, this is what Stott goes on to say about this person right here. It says he was harsh to the point of cruelty and is usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod or a cane in his hand, he himself was usually a slave, and his sole responsibility was to watch over the boy until he came of age. And so it's the reason in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul says to them, he says, you have countless guardians, but you have one father. And, and, and they are harsh with you, and I am tender and loving. He then asks in 1 Corinthians 4, 21, shall I come, listen to this phrase, with a rod in my hand. That's the connection. Shall I come with a rod in my hand or in love and a gentle spirit? So Paul does not just say that we're imprisoned by the law. He goes on to give us another metaphor and says the law is like a guardian who pokes at us and prods at us, and he wears us out. So if you think you're free, the law of God is there poking and prodding and saying, you're not. You don't have it all together. You don't measure up. And then in our passage, Paul switches the metaphor again, or, or, or I think he actually continues he actually says the law was our guardian until Christ came. And then in our passage, he says an heir to an estate until the date set by the father is really no different from the slave. And there is the slavery language again right there in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is the human predicament that we're imprisoned by the law, enslaved to sin and tormented by the law. And I know, right, that, that, that some of us in the room that we might not feel that. But can you buy into these two ideas right here? Is it possible to be sick and not know it? I see some of you shaking your heads because you know what it's like to think that you're healthy and you go to a doctor, 
and they see something that has gone undetected for a year or for several years. And could you buy into this idea, right, that there's, it's possible to be sick and to feel sick and to not really know what it is that's causing the sickness. And I would make the case to you that, that both things are true. It's possible to be sick and to not feel it and to not know it. And it's possible to be sick and to not know what's causing the sickness. And here is what you need in both situations. You have to appeal to an authority higher than you. In other words, you can't trust you and you can't trust your feelings, and you can't trust your knowledge, and therefore doctors enter into the equation, and they are able to give you clarity for things that you can't see or feel. That's where I need you to trust the scriptures here, because Paul is the doctor for your soul. Some of us in the room, we think we're okay, and we're not okay. We are lawbreakers, and we are still imprisoned to the penalty of our sin. We are under its bondage and its power. And if we were to leave this place this very day, we would go and die and spend eternity apart from God. And just because you don't feel it does not mean it's not true. And some of us in the room, right, we have this jarring sense of guilt and shame and we're trying to outwork it and we're trying to clean ourselves up and we think we can do something about it. And Paul says, no, let the law do its work. That is the law of God hounding you and pestering you and giving you this sense of guilt. And Paul says, I know where it's coming from. There is a cancer of the soul and it's eating you alive. That Paul is diagnosing all of humanity before faith comes. And that's the key, right? Before faith comes, this is the condition. And therefore, you ask the question, who needs to be rescued? Everyone. The second thing I want us to think through is who is the rescuer? Who's going to get into the cave and become like us and subject themselves to what we feel? Who's going to enter in and intervene and to save us and rescue us? And notice it's not you and it's not me and it's not a pastor and it's not religion and it's not five steps. That that when you look at the passage, there is one rescuer and his name is Jesus. And so notice the Christmas in this passage that that we learn that it's not the father's desire, right? That there is a date set by the father in verse 2. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. And then go down to verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God the father sent his son. And so trace the dots, right? Trace what what, what Paul is doing. He's reflecting on the first Christmas. He says, we're enslaved until the date set by the Father. And then he goes down and says, but at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And so what is the date that Paul has in mind here? He has Christmas in mind. 
and we don't know the precise date. We know it was around 2,018 years ago, give or take a few years. We think it might have been somewhere between September and right now that that was the day determined by the Father before the foundations of the earth to intervene and to do something about our condition. We call it Christmas. It can also be called Advent, the arrival. And from Jesus' perspective, it was the grand descent. From God's perspective, it was the grand sending. And so Paul's thinking about this, and he, he talks to us about Jesus. He says, God sent forth his son. Think about that. His son, who was at his right hand with the father from all eternity, the son who created all things that we see and don't see, the son who opposed all things by his power, the son who created oxygen and light and darkness and blood and chromosomes and skin and moons and galaxies and planets, like, like that son, that son right there who had been with the father from all eternity. The father says, now it's time. Now it's time for you, the second person of the Trinity, to go on a divine rescue mission. Notice what he says, that he was sent forth from the Father. But look at that next phrase, that he was born of a woman. That is God taking on flesh. That is God becoming like you and I. That is God entering into the very uterus that he created. That is God working and coming and subjecting himself to the very oxygen that you and I breathe. That is God in the flesh, the sustainer and creator of all things, becoming like you and I that, that it's beautiful that we can't wrap our minds around it, that he became truly human and he's still fully God. And then notice what he says, that he, doesn't just, he wasn't just born of a woman, but he was born under the law. Now, why is that important? Because the law imprisons us. The law accuses us. The law enslaves us. And so notice what the son does. He is born under the very law that holds God's people captive. That he had to be Jewish. He was born of the family of David. He was born of a virgin from Isaiah because the law says it. He had to be circumcised on the eighth day because the law commanded it. He was the firstborn child and an offering had to be made for him because the law commanded it that he kept all the feasts, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, the Sabbath. He did not break the moral or ceremonial law where we are weak humans. This human was divine and could by the spirit be like us in every way except without sin. And then 
Notice why he was born of a woman born under the law. Look at verse 5 again. To redeem those under the law. The word for redeem there is intentional. And Paul takes us to a slave market. And I know when some of us hear slavery, we think about American chattel slavery. And the moment we see that word, it it sort of turns us off from all of Scripture. And I want to make this case to you that that God will um, rectify that injustice. And at the same time, this is one of the metaphors that God chooses to use that was happening in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day. He chooses to use something from that slave market to expound our understanding of what it means to be redeemed. So what does it mean to be redeemed in the ancient world? To be redeemed ordinarily referred to the release of a slave by the payment of a price. If someone was willing to pay the price and make a payment, a slave's freedom could be purchased. Think about it. If the law imprisons and enslaves us and torments us, then what the scripture is actually saying is that Jesus comes along and he pays, he pays what is owed. He looks at the law and he looks at the father and he gives all that the law demands and he gives his life to pay for the punishment that lawbreakers deserve. And that's the payment. He will intervene, be born under the law, and he will pay the debt that we owe. And so Christmas, rightly understood, says that the rescue mission of God has started. And the cross of Christ says that the rescue mission of God has been completed. Christmas says the the Christ had to be born and the cross says this child would have to grow up and die. Christianity is not just a religion of the stable and the straw. If we look at it through the lens of faith, it is also a religion of thorn and nails and, and wood and blood. That this child that we're worshiping and adoring who is birthed through the Virgin Mary on this day that we hold sacred, That is not the end of the story. That child would have to grow up and that child would have to render perfect obedience. And then that man, the God man, would be rewarded with death on a cross to make a payment for our sin. And this is what Christmas is ultimately about. And I know it's a time to be generous. It's a time to be with family. It's a time to be with friends. But let us not miss the forest for the trees. The greatest gift 
ever given to us. It's not a spouse. And it's not your jobs. And it's not your children. And it's not your IQ. The greatest gift ever given to you is Jesus. And it is the gift that works backwards. That I imagine you're going to open gifts this week and there's going to be momentary joy and delight. And over time, that delight and joy will fade. The newness will wear off. The gift that God gives us in Jesus, it works the other way. It gets better and better and better and better. When your outer man begins to waste away because of this broken and fallen world, your inner man can be being renewed day by day. That when your heart and your strength, when it starts to fail you, that the joy of the Lord will be your strength and portion forever. That when you get old and you may get Alzheimer's and you cannot remember how to swallow and even remember the scripture that you used to hide deeply into your heart, that gift will say, it's not you keeping me, it's me keeping you. The last thing I want us to think through is, what is the full scope of this mission? I want to stick with the prison imagery. And if we were imprisoned, we would be tempted to think that merely being free is enough. What if we need more than just freedom? There was a, uh, a bill or, that was recently passed, and it's called the First Step Act. And I actually took time to read all 149 pages this week. And for those of you who have not kept up with it, it's, it's a, a major criminal justice reform bill. And uh, here is, just to bring you up to speed, a few things about it. The first thing is there are about 181 million uh, people who are incarcerated right now. This bill will only affect or benefit 2 million. And the question is why? Well, because it's for those who are doing federal time. So instantly, it's not going to benefit 179 million people. It's for those who are in federal prison. On top of that, it is for nonviolent offenders. The third thing that this bill does is it brings equity to sentencing. And so you've heard about the crack cocaine epidemic, which plagued many African-American communities. And you've probably heard about the inequity of prison sentencing. And so a, a, a white person who might be locked up for pure powder cocaine if you were in an inner city, uh, city and you were African-American and your drug of choice was crack cocaine, the sentencing was stiffer. And so they passed a, 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 a fair sentencing act way back in 2010, which brought equity to those scenarios. And so powder cocaine and crack cocaine 
are treated the same in terms of punishment under the law, this new act that, that was just signed, it basically says that, that this is retroactive. And so, it, 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 so at that point in 2010, that bill was passed, and anyone who committed those crimes 2010 forward could be resentenced. What this new act does, it says, hey, this goes back and it's retroactive. And so it allows you to look at anyone in the prison sentence where there is inequity. But the fourth thing that I think is most telling about this new act is around this idea of recidivism. And so recidivism has to do with uh, the likelihood of an inmate who is freed, who then lands uh, back in jail after being free. And so there are some statistics that are, are startling, that within three years of release, 66% of released prisoners were arrested again. Within five years of release, that number jumps to 75% of being re-arrested. And so this new act, it actually has a portion of it, a great portion of it, that deals with recidivism. How do we keep people free once they're freed? And they start to dive in best practices. What are rehabilitation uh, programs that actually work? right, that actually work, those are the ones that we need to have these uh, prisoners a part of. They start to look at uh, workplace readiness, like how do we ready people to transition out and to find employment. They start to look at dyslexia. You will be surprised how many inmates suffer from dyslexia so that even when you try to bring assistance and help, they can't even read the curriculum. And then there's a part of relocation. If they're going to, if they carry this out, inmates can be relocated no more than 500 miles from the place that they want to be released. And here's what they're discovering, that it's not enough just to free a person. They need so much more to thrive on the outside. They need to be near family. They need to have uh, their criminogenic history explored and treatment tailored to them. In other words, what the data shows us is this. You don't just need freedom from prison. You need freedom and so much more in order to get out there and thrive again. Now, why do I go there? Because some of you this morning, you think that the scope of God's redemption is just to free you from your sin. And you think that Jesus has the magic key and he comes to the sale of your sin under the law and he pays the penalty and he opens the door and then he walks you out of the prison that you've been in forever. And then he says, okay, salute. You are now on your way. Go do life by yourself. And here's the thing. It doesn't work Physically, inmates cannot get out and transition and do life as they're supposed to. They need something more than freedom. 
And here is what Jesus does for you in the gospel. He pays the debt. He walks you out of the prison. And then he walks you to the gate of the prison. And he serves you with another set of papers. And the papers that he serves you outside of the prison, it's adoption papers. It's adoption papers. Think about the double image here. You were a slave. You were in prison. I'm going to pay that debt and walk you out, baby. And then when we get out of the prison that you have been in for your whole life, I got some papers for you. And the papers that I will present to you, you are now adopted. You are now in the family of God now and forever. And the one who saved you will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. The one who saved you has poured out his his very spirit in your soul so that now you are a son and daughter forever. The father who has sent his son has sent his spirit and his spirit who is in you and I now cries out, Abba, Father, we have a daddy. We are not out here trying to do life alone. Now look at it in the text. We were enslaved and when the time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. It is not a period there. Look at what it says right after that. To redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That is what you need to underline and circle and highlight. The goal, the full scope for the rescue mission of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is to transform former slaves to sin and make them sons of the Most High. And I know the ladies might be saying, wait a minute, why didn't he say sons or daughters? Look at the beauty of this text. Put your finger right up there on 328. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when he comes down here, you know why he sticks with the sonship language? Because in Paul's day, only the son could get the inheritance. And so look at the beauty right before he gets you to who gets the inheritance and calls us all sons. Right before that, he lays the groundwork and says, if you are in Jesus, black or white, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, we're one in Christ and we're sons. And so when he uses the sonship language in chapter four, you, my precious women in this room. You are sons of the Most High God. Your daddy loves you, and he smiles and gloats over you, and he is ever faithful to you, and he will never, ever leave nor forsake you. He is yours, and he is ours. I want to close with this thought. How do we respond to this good news? 
don't know if you've seen The Cinderella, the Cinderella Man. It's a, a movie about James Braddock, and he's played by Russell Crowe. And he's a, a boxer during the Depression. And they're barely making it by. And so one day he comes home, and his son has stolen some salami. And his dad comes home, and his little sister tells the dad that, hey, 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 he stole salami. And he is a man with deep integrity. And he meets with the son. He says, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And he walks him back to the butcher and makes him return the salami. And then outside, he kind of gets on one knee. And the little boy says, my friend's family had to send him away to an uncle because they could not afford to feed him. And the little boy starts to weep, and I think the daddy gets it, that he stole the salami because he didn't want to be sent home. And the dad says, son, I know times are hard, but that does not give us the right to go and steal. And he stoops down, and he says, no stealing. Give me your word. And the little boy says, no stealing. You know what the dad says? And I promise never to send you away. You don't have to worry about being sent away. You're secure in my love that no matter what happens, that is not a fear of yours anymore. And in response to his love as the father, he tells the son, go and be holy. Isn't that a beautiful image of the gospel? God is your father. And it's not don't steal in order to stay in the house. It works the other way around. He's never sending you and I away. We can rest in that. And we can leave and go and act like we belong in his household. That's my prayer for us this morning. No working to earn anything. The work has been done by Jesus. We respond to the Father's faithful and stable love by looking at the law as a means to enjoy him and honor him now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, our desire is that we would rightly appropriate this text to our hearts and lives. Help us to think deeply about what it means to be sons and daughters of the King. Help us, Father, in the tone of this passage to draw near, to cry out, to commune with, to not set aside the law, but seek to honor it. Not to earn standing with you, but in response to your great love for us in Jesus. Father, I pray for those who don't know you. Might today be a day of salvation. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.